All right, the other thing that uh, I wanted to tell you is that um, after eight and a half years, or eight years, I guess, about, Clarissa and I are excited to announce that she's expecting again, and, uh, and so that's kind of a big deal for us. Now, uh, some of you might know, and I have been quoted as saying, if Clarissa ever got pregnant, it would be a miracle, and, uh, and so I have said that. There, there was a miracle that happened, and the miracle was in, in my heart. Uh, Clarissa and I had talked about this a lot, and, uh, and I was pretty dead set against it. The quiver was full, I said. We've had four. That's plenty enough for anyone. Uh, and yet, God did a lot of work in my heart, and uh, my wife's pretty cool. Uh, she didn't pester me or anything. She just prayed God change either my heart or Dave's heart, and so God did. And so uh, come March, we are expecting another one. And uh, you might pray for us. It's been a long time uh, since I changed a diaper. And so, uh, so yeah, right. I'm sure you can, plenty of you can give me advice. You know, we really debated on whether how soon to tell people. It's still pretty early on. And if you know my wife and our story, we have a history of miscarriage. We've miscarried quite a few times. And so we uh, you know, thought, well, we should just wait and not tell people. But kind of our thought is we're trying to model living life in community, right? And so we believe that if something were to happen, we would want to grieve with all of you and let you grieve with us. So um, we're praying that that doesn't happen. And so we would appreciate your prayers along with us. So we're pretty excited at this point. The kids uh, are excited. It was kind of an interesting reaction at first. Uh, I might post, I recorded that at reaction. Actually, I may post that someday for you all to see. That was kind of fun. So, uh, but uh, yeah, our house is about to get a little busier. All right. Um, we're going to open into John chapter 10 here today. And let me pray before we do this, that God's spirit would be moving here. God, I do pray that you would be honored in the preaching of your word today. That as the great shepherd, you would be guiding us. That we would be continually aware that this is not our church. This is your church. And that you are the leader. And so God, as the good shepherd, Jesus, as the good shepherd, we pray that your spirit would be moving here and leading us. And that today, especially our hearts would be open to, um, to your word here. And so, Lord God, just be honored in every way as we look at your word today. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, if you're here at any, with any regularity at all, you've probably noticed something that was missing from the sermons this summer, and that would be references to the Cubs. Uh, you, right? I mean, you've all been missing this, I know. And there's a, a very specific reason that you've been missing these references. They're just really bad. <laughs> and it's just been, you know, really gut-wrenching. And, you know, it, this disorder that I have of, of following the Cubs has uh, been, you know, the Lord's kept that well in check this year. And, uh, you know, if you've wondered why, it's because they stink. And, you know, I guess the Cubs, who have the highest payroll in the National League, just goes to show you that you can't buy a championship Apparently the Cubs really can't buy anything. So, uh, you know, who knows? You know, we Cubs fans, we hang in there. But uh, anyway, I do mention the Cubs today because of a specific reason. Uh, Josh Foreman and I were having a conversation this week in which we were lamenting uh, the Cubs. And uh, we were specifically complaining about the Cubs general manager, Jim Hendry. Now, the general manager of a baseball team, his or her job is to hire and staff the team. The general manager figures out 
what kind of contracts to give out, and he works with his payroll, and he puts together a team. That's his job. And we pretty much think that Jim, Jim Henry has stunk at this job. And so Josh jo- jokingly says to me, he goes, Dave, you and I could do a better job of general managing the Cubs than he has. And we both laugh because we both know that that's not true. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's actually a very hard job. But uh, us lamenting fans love to second-guess those who've been placed in charge of the team. Now, sometimes as a fan of any sport, Vikings fans, right? You understand this, right, Gary? You got it, right? You, the, this this, this uh, uh, Fans love to second-guess. You know, we love to guess what's going on. And, but the, the fact of the matter is sometimes us fans forget what our job is. Our job is not to assemble the team. Our job is to cheer. When the rubber hits the road, that's our job. Fork over our money and cheer. It's easy for us to get so into our team that we forget our role. Now, role confusion is commonplace in our world and in our lives. We do it in sports. We get confused. We do it in politics. We do it in marriage. We do it at work. We do it with our Savior. People are constantly confusing their role and God's role. You see, the truth is, we act like we're in charge. But when the truth of the matter is that we're not. You see, today, I want you to remember this idea more than anything else. The simple idea. Jesus is the shepherd. You and I are the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd. You and I, we're the sheep. In life, Jesus is the leader. You and I are the followers. But sometimes we get confused. So we've been in this Gospel of John for a long time, and we're going to be in it for a long time. And the goal of John, is, as we've been looking through this passage and the apostle john has been writing his words as he's been writing them down and and this is sort of john's life work this gospel of jesus john is not just randomly recording ideas going oh i remember this about jesus and oh that was a good one when jesus did that no john's had his entire life to reflect on the ministry of jesus and john is pulling out key strategic events in jesus life and assembling them in an order to communicate truth about jesus This isn't a chronological book. He wasn't writing a book of history where he just writes it down in order and this is how it happened. No, he's writing history with a purpose. He's putting these real events in Jesus' life together in a way that communicate to us something true about Jesus. And what John is doing is he's helping, trying to help Christians that are being persecuted. The Christians in John's churches that John oversaw, that they were being persecuted specifically by the Jewish people who kind of just heaped abuse on them when they figured out that the Christians weren't just another branch of Judaism, but they were actually claiming that Jesus was God. And they heaped abuse on them. And John wrote this gospel to say to them, stay the course. Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. And so, in, in throughout John, you'll notice that John makes the religious leaders of the Jews look really bad. Because... He's trying to communicate to the Christians, hang on, Jesus got it right. But John also wants a second purpose, and and that's so that non-believers who are reading this for the first time, people who don't believe in Jesus, that they would be convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And so John highlights this conflict with the religious leaders over and over again. And, and it's been building for the last three chapters, which for us has been like 12 weeks. But it's been building week after week after week. The conflict with these religious leaders intensifies. You can see they don't like Jesus very much. The criticism abounds. And it's very clear by, the top, by this point in John that these religious leaders have rejected Jesus as their leader. You see, they had role confusion. They didn't want to believe that Jesus was the shepherd and they were the sheep. To highlight this, Jesus puts up this new illustration. It's a parable or a metaphor or a story. Jesus turns to a picture of something that was well known in his day to highlight to these Jewish leaders that they got it all wrong. And he turns to this picture of a shepherd and his sheep. Now, I don't think we have a lot of sheep farms around here in Iowa. We're not so familiar with the sheep industry as other places. Uh, And we certainly aren't familiar with what it was like to be a shepherd of the sheep in the first century. But what Jesus wants us to know and what John is highlighting is that Jesus is the shepherd. We are the sheep. You see, many people in Jesus' day didn't want him to be him to be their leader. They wanted to be the leader. So when he compared himself to a shepherd, (laughs) they didn't really appreciate that so much. Jesus, you're not our shepherd. I'm my own shepherd. Or Moses is my shepherd. Or God Almighty is my shepherd. But not you, Jesus. And you see, you and I, in many ways, we're not much different. In so many areas of our lives, we confuse who the leader is. And most of us have proved that when we lead our own life, we mess it up profoundly. We mess it up royally. If you ever want to lead your own life, and many of us try and do, whenever you do that, I'm willing to bet that you screw it up. Because you're not the leader. Jesus is. I mean, you ever think of, just think for a second of some area of your life that you've messed up. I'm not talking about pain and suffering. That's a different element. What I'm just talking about is when you took full control of your life and messed it up royally. Maybe it's at your work. (laughs) Like, I'm going to do this my way because I want work to go this way or I want to be in this position. And you screw it up. Maybe it's in your marriage. You said, no, my marriage, I want it to be this, this, this way. And I'm going to take the bull by the horns. And I don't care what you have to say, Jesus, about marriage. I'm going to do this. And we screw it up. Maybe it's family stuff. And maybe you got people in your family, like we all have them, right? People in our family that just <laughs> are difficult to get along with. And, and then we don't like so much. And we just say, on my own, I decided to cut them off. Or I'm not going to deal with them anymore. Well, what, Jesus, you want me to actually minister to them? No, 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 no. I'm done. I'm tired of that. And we mess it up. How about money? How many of us have thought, you know what? Um, I'm going to take, you know, like things are tight, things are not going well. What, what's true is I need to just take back all the money stuff from God and leave God out of it because I can clearly control this better. And so I just need to get this budget in place. And God, what do you want me to do? You want me to give some of my money away? No, no, no. God, I got it. And we take it back. If we're going to acknowledge that Jesus is the shepherd and we are the sheep, then we need to understand a few things about Jesus. We need to be absolutely crystal clear 
on these things about Jesus. And these are the, basically the points that Jesus gives us in the first 21 verses of John chapter 10. And here they are. If you're taking notes, write these things down. We'll throw them up on the board. Here's the things that you need to understand about Jesus. Number one, in, in order to clarify in our minds that he is the shepherd and we are the sheep, to clarify roles, we need to first of all understand that Jesus is legit. Jesus is legit. Okay, in each one of these sections in John chapter 10, verses 1 to 21, we're going to split this into three sections. In each section, Jesus is going to give us a picture or a metaphor, and he's going to change the metaphor a little bit as we're working along so he can communicate to us the picture that he wants in our minds. The very first picture in these first six verses of John chapter 10 is the idea of a watchman. The idea of a watchman. Now, you have to understand some things about sheep herding in those days. They probably didn't have nice little plots of land divided by fences where the sheep could just run around. That's why the shepherd was so important. The shepherd had a group of sheep. They were his command. They were in, he was in charge of protecting those sheep. Now, when you don't have a, a nice little enclosure to keep your sheep in all the time, you don't have a barn to herd them into, uh, at nighttime becomes a pretty perilous time for a shepherd and his sheep. Because that was when the time that if the shepherd fell asleep or if, you know, it was dark and you couldn't see what was going on, robbers could steal your sheep. Wolves or wild animals could attack your sheep and pull them off. Lots of bad things happened specifically at night. And so oftentimes, what, since sheep herding was a family business, the, the, the families would take their sheep and they would move them into a, a really small enclosed location. Sometimes this was like against the, the face of a, a rock cliff that came around. And then they would take stones and, and build out the rest of it. And they would make a little wall. And then, of course, there's an entrance gate. And the, and the shepherd would lead all the sheep into there for the night. And then what that family would often do is they would hire a watchman for the night. And the watchman's job was to sleep in the gate. He would lay down in the gate so that no sheep could leave and nothing could get in. The only way that you could get in is by climbing a wall. (laughs) And the only person that climbs the wall is the person that's not supposed to be in there. Nothing gets in and out of that wall at night. That's the watchman's job. Except for the owner of the sheep. If the the owner of the sheep, who was probably the actual shepherd, if he would show up at night or in the morning, the watchman would let the rightful owner of the sheep into the pen. That was his job. Anyone who got in by any other way was a thief. They were illegitimate. They weren't the rightful shepherd. Their purpose, if they got into the pen, was not good. The rightful shepherd had good intent for the sheep. Now, look at the text with me. Verses 1 to 3. I want to read this. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. Right? You don't go through the gate. You're not supposed to be there. You've got bad intent. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd. The watchman lets him in. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep 
listen to his voice. Now, now keep reading. Watch this. The, the sheep listen to the shepherd's voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he's brought out his own, he goes on ahead of them. Now, you have to understand something here. OK, a lot of times families, it was fairly expensive to build this enclosure where all the sheep stayed. And so a lot of times what families would do if you had family friends with they, these shepherds would bring their herds together and they would put all of maybe three or four flocks into one enclosure at nighttime. Now, uh, this you would think this might be difficult to split the sheep out again in the morning, you know. Wait, which sheep is that? Whose is that, you know? But they had a specific way of splitting out the sheep. The shepherd knew his sheep so well, and the sheep knew their shepherd so well, that all he had to do was make a specific call. A shepherd had, had a specific voice call, and he would call them, and only his sheep would come to him as he left the pen. You see, the sheep know their shepherd's voice. They know it. Friends, we're not the shepherd. We're the sheep. And Jesus is our legitimate leader. And if we're his sheep, we ought to know his voice so well that we don't follow the illegitimate leaders. When leaders stand up and call to us, and it's, a, it's clear to us that they're a thief or they're a robber, but that's not the voice of our shepherd. You see, here's what Jesus means. Look at verse 6. He says, Jesus used this figure of speech, but they didn't understand what he was telling them. You see, the people that Jesus is talking to, these Jewish leaders, they didn't get it. But what he meant was that he was legit. He was the rightful shepherd. He was the one in this picture that the watchman should let in. And the real sheep know his voice. These hard-hearted religious guys, they weren't sheep in Jesus' parable here. They're the illegitimate leaders. They're the ones that crawled over the wall to steal the sheep. Jesus is the legitimate leader. Which makes us ask a hard question. Are we a sheep? Because if we're not a sheep, in the parable, apparently we're the illegitimate leader. We're the thief or the robber. You see, Jesus is legitimate. The Father has appointed Jesus the Son as the head of the church. So God's people know and listen to Jesus. Jesus has a rightful claim to be your leader. You see, sometimes we like Jesus for the whole cross thing and the love thing and the forgiveness thing. But we forget that he's the leader of the church and he's the rightful heir. He's the king of the universe. In Philippians, it says, God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and in earth and under the earth. In other words, everywhere in the universe. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the rightful heir to the universe. And the path of history was paved to him. 
All the law and the prophets pointed to Jesus. His coming was destined from the beginning of time. The watchman, in this metaphor, we could say that the watchman was John the Baptist. John the Baptist knew. But the very act of who Jesus was and what he did, that Jesus was the legitimate heir and he let him in, were constantly getting messages that are opposed to this truth. This truth that Jesus is the legitimate leader of our lives, that truth is continually bombarded. You see, people want you to think that you're the master of your own life. That you set the course for your life. And nobody tells you what to do. And people are constantly saying, there's no God in charge of anything. God just kind of The God that I want to believe in just kind of started it all and sent us on our merry way. People are constantly saying to you, you're not responsible for anybody but you and nobody was responsible for you except for you. But Jesus is the legitimate leader. People tell you, you're responsible to choose your own path. But Jesus is the legitimate leader. And see, you and I are constantly trying to exchange our role as sheep For his role as shepherd. We're doing it all the time. You know, um, the other day, (laughs) one of my kids was mad. That's something that I told them they had to do. And they didn't like it. Folded their arms. You're not the boss of me. (laughs) That didn't go so well, just so you know. I can get really big at that time, you know. Oh, yeah? (laughs) Our kids learned really quick that I am the boss of them. I mean, but each of us want to do that. And in some way with God, we fold our arms in Him and say, God, you're not the boss of me. I'll do what I want to do. Our kids learn really quick. Anna was asking me the other day, she said, Dad, is it awesome being an adult? (laughs) You know, is it awesome? And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, you get to do whatever you want, whenever you want, and no one tells you what to do, and you just decide to do it and do it. Is that awesome? And I said, oh, honey. (laughs) Oh, sweetie. No, it doesn't work like that. Guess what? Someone's going to tell you something that you have to do for the rest of your life. What? (laughs) I mean, you know. But the truth is, none of us really, at some level, want to acknowledge that we have someone who's going to tell us what to do. And we, want, we don't want to acknowledge this idea. We don't like the idea of king so much, right? In this country, you know, I don't know if you remember, but there was this certain date, July 4th, 1776, where we kind of said we don't want a king anymore, and we'll choose our own leaders. And we don't really like this idea of king. But Jesus is our king. He's not the president of the body. He's the head of the body. He's the king. And he has a legitimate right to shepherd us. And he'll do it well. So much better than you and I. If you're going to allow Jesus to have this role of leader and shepherd in your life, if we're going to assume our role as sheep, we need to just acknowledge Jesus. You are legit. And I acknowledge you as my leader. But we also need to understand something else. The second thing that we need to understand, first of all, Jesus is legitimate. The second thing is he's life. In verses 7 to 10, Jesus begins to change the metaphor a little bit. The first metaphor was the watchman. 
The second metaphor he uses now is still talking about sheep and shepherds, but it's the gate. See, the watchman let Jesus in as a legitimate shepherd. Now, Jesus says, he's the gate. And in John chapter 7, throw up those seven I am's, Richard. We're going to see in John, in the Gospel of John, we've mentioned this before, but there are seven I am statements. And remember, when Jesus says I am, he's not just like, you know, saying a verb. He's actually using the very name for God himself. He's saying, I am God. Just in saying that little statement, I am Yahweh. That's God's name. I am God. Okay? So he's saying, I am the bread of life, chapter 6. The light of the world, chapter 8. In this chapter 10, right here, we're going to see he uses two of them. He doubles up. I am the gate and I am the good shepherd. Oh, it's hard to read those. Gate and good shepherd. That's what that says. Uh, in verse chapter 11, uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's where... He raises Lazarus from the dead. Um, in chapter 13, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then in chapter 15, I am the true vine. You see, Jesus wants us to first understand that he's the gate. He's the one that lets people in and out. You know, the word exclusive is not such a good word these days. Everyone thinks of exclusivity with this, you know, like... <laughs> You got your nose in there, like a gated community, right? If you're in a gated community, it's exclusive. It's designed to keep a bunch of people out, right? That's what we t- the way we tend to think about exclusive. You know, we tend to look down on it and not like it because we feel like there, anyone inside the gates looking down at us. But Jesus doesn't raise his nose at people, but he is exclusive because Jesus is the gate. You see, there's only one way into the sheep pen. That's through him. That's not really a popular concept, but we can't emphasize it enough. Everyone wants to avoid conflict so badly in our culture. You know, we all have, sort of have this cry, can't we just get all get along? Can't we just dumb it down to the very few basic concepts and just all say we all agree about everything? But Jesus is exclusive. Everyone wants to agree on everything so badly that we're willing to throw it out. Is Lucas struggling today? (laughs) Poor guy. (laughs) We can't emphasize this enough, you guys. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Everyone else is a thief and a robber. Furthermore, what Jesus says, look, and, and hang in here with me. Jesus says the thief comes to kill steal, and destroy. Not nice things. Everyone who isn't Jesus is a thief and a robber and who has bad intent in mind. You see, it's not only Jesus is the only way, it's that everyone else who's an illegitimate leader brings death. You see, Jesus is the gate. If we want to get to the Father, we have to go through Jesus. There's no other way. If you know your history at all, there's been a lot of prolific leaders in the history of the world. You know, we could name a lot of them. But some of the more infamous ones are, are guys like Joseph Stalin. You know, he was the head of, of the Soviet Union and uh, for th- almost 30 years. And, and Joseph Stalin wasn't a real nice guy. But when Joseph Stalin took power, he pretty much took it from the first guy, Lenin, and pretty much. And he took over... And, Communism was still at its idealistic phase. I mean, this idea of communism where, 
you know, the government basically just takes everything and distributes it evenly to everyone. It was still kind of in its an idealistic phase. And so that when he took power, Joseph Stalin promised a lot. He promised life and, and happiness for their society. The only problem is that he didn't bring life or happiness. He brought death. Your property was seized. He started this infamous secret police. He terrorized and exterminated his own people. He revoked personal freedoms. He was, in many ways, every bit of the monster that Adolf Hitler was, just to his own people. Joseph Stalin promised life, and he brought death because he was a robber and a thief. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the gate but I have come to bring life. This is the only chapter, chapter 10, John chapter 10, is the only chapter in the entire Bible that references the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. Now, we know uh, Hanukkah as, you know, the, sort of the equivalent of Christmas, right? You know, it's kind of like the alternate Christmas in our culture. If you don't want to have Christmas, you get either Kwanzaa or Hanukkah, right? And so, uh, and Kwanzaa's just made up. So, you know, I mean, Hanukkah is, this is the only place, and, and Hanukkah is really a minor, pretty minor Jewish festival. But what's really fascinating is the history behind Hanukkah. Um, if you know, I'll give you a quick summary. Uh, in about 160, 150, yeah, 150, 160 years before the birth of Jesus, um, the nation of Israel had returned from exile and they'd come back to their land and they'd rebuilt the temple and they were sort of hanging out in the land. And that was a time of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was Greek and he conquered the known world. Alexander the Great brought Greek culture and philosophy and language to the entire known world. And what happened in these 150 years or so between Alexander the Great or 200 roughly years between Alexander the Great and the birth of Jesus, is that the entire Jewish world pretty much got, the word is Hellenized. That means that they were basically turned into Greeks. They stopped speaking Hebrew. They adopted Greek culture and ideas. They pretty much took the whole worship of God as it was set out in the Old Testament and set it aside. But there was a, a group of very conservative fundamental Jews who looked at Scripture and cried out, you guys, this isn't right. Like, well, this isn't what God intended for us. You don't even know how, the Bible anymore. You haven't even read God's word. And so they basically started a revolt. And they revolted against the, the, the conservative Jewish people, revolted against those who were sort of secular people and had just been culturized. And this guy named Judas Maccabees went and basically he, he attacked with a guerrilla-style warfare, and he took over the temple. And for eight days, he left this candle burning in the temple because he rededicated it and began to, to reinstitute worship of God the right way. That's what Hanukkah is about. It's a celebration. In John chapter 10, in verse 22, John references this festival. It's called the winter celebration, but that's what became of it. They celebrated these eight days of, of this uh, of rededication of the temple and and. But Hanukkah sort of comes, we don't get this anymore today, but at Jesus' time, anytime Hanukkah came around, there was an important question on people's mind. How could our leaders let us get to the point where we completely forgot about how to worship God? That's the question that goes along every year. And the the point of Hanukkah was, let's never forget. Don't let this happen again. 
You see, the very, John doesn't just throw out these festival names for fun. Like, hey, you know, here's a festival, and that was a fun one. And, and oh, by the way, that was going on when Jesus was saying this. No, whenever, I mean, John's putting this gospel together in a way that involves a lot of thought. And, and what John is saying was the average reader reads about Hanukkah going on. The average reader in that day thinks about, oh, this is the time to question our leaders. This is the time to say, are our leaders following? Now watch what Jesus does. In the context of all that, Jesus says, you want to know how your leaders could get you to the point where you completely lost your heritage? The answer is because they weren't the rightful leaders. I am. Jesus forces the issue. When Jesus says, I'm the gate, by the way, I'm the only way to God. I'm the rightful leader. People don't really like that so much, right? I mean, even today. Oh, you Christians, you're so exclusive. Look at how they responded in verse 19. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, Oh, these are, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I mean, what they're doing is Jesus always creates controversy. Everywhere he goes, it's no different today. C.S. Lewis called it liar, lunatic, or Lord. He said, when you look at the life of Jesus, you have to say either he was a liar and he just lied his way through all these things, or he was a madman. He didn't know what he was saying. It was just coming out. Or he is who he says he was. You got to reduce it to one of those. And most of you don't want to say, oh, I don't think Jesus was a liar. He was a nice guy. Well, that's not what they thought in John chapter 10. They chose option two. They said he's a madman. He's crazy. But the people go, can a madman do these things? He's not a madman. He must be who he says he is. Only the rightful shepherd of our lives brings good things. And understand this. When Jesus says he's the gate, he's saying he gets it. And he's saying that we truly find life in him. Look at this verse. It's like one of the, my, my favorite verses in all of scripture. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. Now the thief in there is not the devil. The thief in there is the illegitimate leader. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. You see, Jesus is the gate and he comes to bring life. So many times we think of Jesus as the gate being the get into heaven card, right? We just want into heaven. Jesus, sweet, just let me into heaven, I'm there. But Jesus is more than that. He's life abundant. This is not the American picture of wealth. This is not Jesus bringing you all the prosperity you want. That's not life abundant. It's not the Cubs winning the World Series or the Vikings winning the Super Bowl. It's not accumulating more stuff. Abundant life is Jesus. And I can't say this enough, and I say it a lot. Heaven is not our treasure, friends. Jesus is our treasure. He is our great reward. And we must have Jesus. But the thing is, we don't have to wait. He brings abundant life now. You see, abundant life is waking up in the morning 
and realizing that this day is not about you. It's realizing that you don't have to stress because Jesus is in control, not you. When I traveled to the Middle East, uh, you know, as, as a youth pastor, I led a lot of trips and I was in charge. And, and being in charge of a trip is really not that great. It's stressful and you're always thinking, you're not thinking about just ministry, but you're thinking about the team and everything that's happening. And, and when I went with my brother, it was like, here, you lead. I'm just going to concentrate on ministry and this is awesome. And I loved it, you know? And I think that there's, Living an abundant life is like that. It's like with life. I don't have to wake up in the morning and stress about the day because I can go, you know, I'm not in charge. Here you go, Jesus. You're in charge. I'm the sheep. You're the shepherd. Living abundant life is giving up control of our life and stuff. I don't know about you, but um, listen, with our say, family size, and it'll just get worse, uh, we collect a lot of junk, you know. And so it's like, oh, there's so much stuff in our house. And I have a little party every time we drop something off at Goodwill. I'm like, woo give me that uh, little form because I want my deduction. And, you know, like I get rid of this stuff. This is a great deal all the way around. And so there's a little party, you know. And so, you know, giving up control of our life and stuff is like that. It's like, oh, life and stuff brings weight and responsibility. But Jesus, he brings freedom and healing. Living an abundant life is completely depending on Jesus for every breath of every day. It's walking forgiven. It's forgiving others because you've been forgiven. It's living your life purpose. It's doing what you were created to do. You guys, many of you know that um, we're on our second puppy in the last six months, but a little Bernice Mountain Dog. And, and you know, the thing about, um, we named him Riker of my Star Trek addiction. Anyway, but so the thing about my Bernese Mountain Dog is he was created for snow and for hauling, right? He was created to work in the Swiss Alps and haul carts. And so he's got this thick coat. And, you know, 95 degrees doesn't suit so well for Riker. And so even as a puppy of eight weeks old now, he just goes around, finds the air conditioner vent in the house and just lays on it. But I know come winter, he's going to run out in that snow. He was bred and designed to be in the snow. Because he's miserable now. And so many of you and I are like that. Because we're not living abundant life, we've thought we're trying to be a Bernice Mountain Dog in 95 degree weather. And we're miserable. And we're like, well, I don't know if I'm going to like snow. But we are created to follow. Jesus is the gate and he brings life. Okay, so if you and I are going to transition from our own lives as leader to acknowledging that Jesus is the shepherd and we're at the sheep. First of all, we have to understand he's the legitimate leader. Second, we need to understand that he's life. And the third thing we need to understand as we wrap up today is that Jesus is love. Jesus isn't a tyrant. He's, he's the kind of shepherd that loves the sheep. Look at verse 12. Well, verse 11. He says, I'm the good shepherd. So that we're into the third metaphor, right? The third picture. The first one was the watchman. The second one was the gate. And now the third picture. He is the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the sheep who own, the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks and the flock scatters. The man runs away because he's the hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The hired hand is the guy who stands by the gate at night. And when the wolf comes, he says, 
dude, they aren't my sheep. I'm out of here, you know, not my responsibility. I was helping Megan and Peter move last weekend, you know, and, and, and Megan and Peter had this huge mirror that they got from somewhere. I don't know where you guys got it, but it's like, um, everything's out of the house and it's like one of the last things to go. And they're like, okay, Dave, we got to move the big mirror. And you, you have to understand, like me and breakable things don't really get along. And I told him, you know, this is above my pay grade, <laughs> which is zero right now. So uh, I don't think that you should really want me to do this. And, but of course it ended up that it was me moving this big mirror, you know? But I, I was sort of laughing the whole day as we're helping him move. You know, have you, if you've ever had someone help you move, do you notice that they don't treat your stuff as carefully as you would, right? I mean, you know, it's because, you know, they're the hired hand. They're just on it for, or for, you know, no hire. They're your friend, right? And it's like, oops, oh well, you know, nice mirror, Peter, too bad, you know, no, no skin off my back. By the way, the mirror made it, I think. Did it make it? Okay, we're okay. I got it on. So, but you know, you know what it's like? It's like the hired hand. It's like when you rent a car. You don't treat your car as carefully when you're renting it as you do if it's your own. I mean, that's the idea that Jesus is saying here. The hired hand doesn't care, but I care because it's my flock. And the shepherd loves the sheep. You know, shepherds, often time in Jesus' day, they sang to their sheep. They protected them. They cuddled. They slept with them at times. They led them. You know, the thing about this here, guys, is it's not the kindest of metaphor when you think about it. Because sheep are idiots. I mean, they're dumb. I read one blog by a sheep herder, which is funny that they have a blog of sheep herders. But anyway, this one, this one shepherd, basically a person who raised sheep, was talking about the, how stupid sheep are. And, and uh, this writer said that in the first two years of life, sheep are clearly the dumbest animal on the planet because they'll follow anyone, anywhere, and run into anything. And she was just talking about how many times she watches sheep just run their head against the gate. Instead of like waiting for it to be opened, you know, they just run into it over and over and over. The thing is, okay, Jesus didn't pick this metaphor (laughs) by accident, right? Okay, and if we're the sheep, (laughs) we're dumb. And it doesn't take you very long in interacting with people to realize that people are dumb. But here's the thing. Jesus loves us anyway. Now, Jesus takes this illustration off the map because no. No shepherd loved his sheep that much. No shepherd loved his sheep enough that he would be willing to give his life for the sheep. Look at what Jesus says. And this is powerful, guys. Hang in here with me. because This is good stuff. He says, verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the sheep, I lay down my life for the sheep. I think the shepherd liked his sheep and all, but no shepherd would go, ooh, I'll, I'll give up my life for this sheep. Jesus takes us to a whole nother level. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them in also. And he's talking about Gentiles, non-Jewish people there. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus is going off the charts here. And he's what he's doing is he's sending us a picture. He's foreshadowing his death that is to come. You see, Jesus didn't get killed by accident. He wasn't a nice guy that, whoops, oh, wow, he got killed. Bummer for him. Jesus 
intentionally laid down his life for the dumb, stupid, idiot sheep like you and me. In spite of your stupid sins, God loves you enough to die for you. And this truth, friends, should never get old. It should never get old. And this today, if you don't know Jesus in this way, if he isn't your shepherd, this is why you should be a sheep. This is why you should say, Jesus Christ, I believe in you that you died for my sin. It's because of an incredible love that surpasses all understanding. Jesus loved you enough to die for you. And it's not just a flippant, trivial phrase. It's the deepest truth that will transform your life. You see, today, I, I can't challenge you enough. Be a sheep. Be a sheep. I ran kids club when um, I was in high school. We do these kids clubs in these towns for all these little kids. And we'd always just sing this song. We'd say, I just want to be a sheep. We'd make them do this bad, bad. I just want to be a sheep. Give the shepherd my soul to keep. I just want to be a sheep. I don't want to be a goat. Anyway, it goes on. You know, but I mean, it's this truth that be a sheep. Be a disciple. And if I had one challenge for you today, it's simply this. The challenge is this. Be a follower of Jesus. Follow the shepherd. Be a disciple. We don't talk about discipleship here for nothing. We don't just talk about it because it's a fun word to say, discipleship. You know, we talk about it because we mean it. We're raising up followers of Jesus. Because frankly, there aren't enough followers in our world today. We have too many leaders leading their own lives. Not enough followers following Jesus. I recently read about this 18-year-old girl who applied to a college. It was kind of an elite college. And on the application, one of the questions was, are you a leader? And she responded on that application because she wanted to be honest and conscientious. She wrote no, and then returned the application, sort of expecting to hear the worst. To her surprise, she received the following note from her college. It's a dear applicant. A study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it's imperative that we have at least one follower. I love it. You see, the church, friends, we badly need leaders. We do. We need leaders to stand up. But more than that, we need followers. We need people who want to live life abundantly. And then we must figure out how to radically become a follower of Jesus. That's my challenge to you today. Be a radical follower. Follow him. Let him be the shepherd. You be the sheep. Let's pray as the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song. God, today we love you. And we long for uh, you to be our shepherd. And we want to be your sheep. And God, I know there's people here today who have never trusted you enough to place their faith in you. And God, I pray that today would be the day they would do that. And there's a whole lot of us, God, who want you to be our shepherd, but we keep taking it back. We don't want to be a thief. We want you to be the legitimate shepherd of our lives. 
And so today, as we leave here, would you give us the grace to let you be in charge and not us. As we sing here, as we close, God, I pray that our words would come from our heart and it would reflect this heart desire that because of the grace you've given to us, that we would follow you completely. In the precious name of Jesus.